those that are joining by way of the, uh, uh, the Zoom call this morning, God, that you touch them. Anoint our ears to hear your word and let your presence be manifested here in our midst, Lord Jesus, that we would feel your touch and we would know you're with us and that we would feel the encouragement and strength of your word. In Jesus' name, we praise you and we give you the thanks and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. <clears throat> Last week, we started in the book of Psalms 23. It's a famous psalm. Psalm of David, uh, appropriate since David started out as a shepherd um, and, and then became eventually the king of Israel. But interestingly, the way that the, the Hebrew language is, the same word that is used for shepherd is the same word they use for king. They don't really change it very much. They have the same root. They're very slight differentiation for the sake of, of language and understanding, but the same root is the same. And it's interesting that the Lord would, uh, in fact, it's funny, uh, shepherd became a king, and then in the New Testament, we, we, we learn that Jesus is the good shepherd, but he's also the king of kings, because uh, God really wanted this picture to be translated, and, and in fact, when God gave gifts to the church, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some teachers, some evangelists, and some shepherds. He uses the word shepherd also for pastor because there's this continuation that God wants to get the message across that we need a shepherd. But ultimately, the, the, the role of the king was to point the people towards God as their shepherd. The role of the prophet was always to point the people back to God as their shepherd. And uh, it's no, no mystery that the role of a pastor today is not to lord over people. In fact, God told Peter uh, that, that don't be lord over my heritage. You're not the lord. You're just the under-shepherd. You're to guide and to feed and to care. And so the same role uh, applies to a pastor to, to point you towards the good shepherd to point you towards the Lord that is your shepherd. And if the Lord is your shepherd, David makes a few statements here. He says, you shall not want. That doesn't mean you won't desire things, but that you won't be lacking what you need. Uh, sometimes you want things you don't need, and you want things just in order to appease a, a, a carnal desire or some kind of internal uh, thing that says, I want this, I want that. But that's not necessarily what you need. What David is saying here is if the Lord is your shepherd, if you're leaning on him, if you're following him, if you're walking with him, then you won't have any lack. You'll have exactly what you need. We covered the fact that he makes us to lie down in green pastures. And we read that today and we think, oh, you know, waist-deep alfalfa. We think a green, lush valley, perhaps those beautiful, picturesque uh, travel magazines that show you Ireland or Scotland. And there's just endless rolling hills of green grass and sheep grazing on the side of a hill. And we think, the Lord is my shepherd. He's going to bring me to this green hill, Right? He's going to, and for me, I don't eat grass, so, uh, you know, green money is going to come my way. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green money because 
I mean, I don't eat grass, and grass is kind of nasty, so I know there's people that put it in smoothies. I don't get that. I don't understand why. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> that's not what the Bible is. David didn't have that in his mind when he said that. I showed you some pictures last week of what David's idea of a green pasture was. And, 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 and if you look, uh, just go on Google and type in the Negev Wilderness. And you'll see endless rolling hills of brown, 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 lots of brown. And there's these pathways etched into the side of the hill, and you think, what is this? And this is what David said was a green pasture. Because to a Jewish shepherd who grew up in Israel, they knew the biggest problem of their day was water. So if there was an area that grew lush green pastures, it wasn't relegated to the sheep. It was given to the farmers to produce wheat, barley, and other essential grains for the community. The, the grass, that the pastures that were lush and green were not given to the sheep. They were given to the farmers. And so the shepherds were given the hills of the Negev Desert. And, and, and in those areas, there is a little bit of moisture that, that comes in from the Mediterranean. And it collects in the cracks of the rocks and the crevices of that, that dry, arid area. And in those areas, little tufts of grass. You look at it from a zoomed-out perspective, and it's just brown hills rolling. And you say, there's nothing green about this, but the closer you get, you'll notice, hey, there's actually quite a bit of vegetation here, and it's a common feeding ground for shepherds. And the shepherds know what hills have been grazed, and what hills are ready, and what hills are not. And so David said, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He takes me to the place where I'll get exactly what I need. And sheep never ever have an abundance of grass, like waist-deep alfalfa or green grass, but they have exactly what they need because the shepherd knows where to take them. And so David's saying, if the Lord is my shepherd, he'll take me exactly where I want. And I may not have an abundance. I may not have so much that it's overflowing and pouring out of every, every area of my life. But there will be just enough. God will make sure I have enough if I'm following the shepherd. So the question is always, are you following the shepherd? Are you following the shepherd? He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You're with me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. We talked about these things last week, and we have a podcast. You can go back and re-listen to the whole message if you want more of that. But David seems to transition from sheep to person. Because we get to verse 5. And he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And right away, you begin to get the sense he's not talking about sheep anymore because sheep don't eat at the table. At first, the Lord was my shepherd, and I was the sheep, and I followed him, and he led me to green pastures. I was the grass-eating, water-drinking sheep, led by the shepherd, his rod and his staff, and taking me through valleys and Difficult situations, but at the end, he was going to help me. But then he switches pictures. He changes, you know, he, because later he says, my cup overflows. Well, sheep don't drink from a cup. <laughs> they, they drink from the stream. So you know that David is no longer using the analogy of sheep. Uh, he's, he's switching metaphors, if you will. He's transitioning to another aspect 
of the shepherd's life. The shepherd is a nomad, meaning he does not stay in one place very long. He moves about. And no doubt the shepherd often lived in a tent-like structure with a camp and set up in an area for a time and then moved on to a different region. And so we begin to see this, this dynamic of a table being presented before somebody. And they're in the presence of enemies and their head is being anointed with oil and their cup is flowing over and goodness and mercy are following them all the days of their life. And now they're invited to dwell in the house of the shepherd forever. Jesus is still the shepherd in this passage. God still considered the shepherd. But we're no longer sheep in this passage. Now we transition to the guest, the honored guest. David is exposing the nature of Jehovah in this passage. He's exposing God's nature, God's character. And, and one thing that we realize about God in this passage is that God is not a God that reacts to anything. <clears throat> God does never, never reacts to your problems. You may react to your problems. That's because you're by nature a time-bound individual. You are constantly at the mercy of the clock, whether you like it or not, whether you ignore it or you use it to your advantage, time marches on and waits for nobody. But God is not bound by time, so God is never in a place or a position of reaction. God is always acting. From the very moment that the scripture opens, God is not reacting to the chaos, but God is acting where God speaks and things take place. God proactively provides he causes me to rest. God does not anticipate my, God anticipates my exhaustion level and he forces me to lie down in green pastures. When I'm following the shepherd, my life is restful. My heart is at ease because I'm allowing him to act in my life and call me to rest when I need to rest. He takes me down the right paths, the Bible says. He restores my soul. His rod and his staff are ready for trouble. They're ready to beat back the enemy, and they're ready to guide and direct me in the way I should go. He prepares a table before me. Before I know I need it, he's already got the table set. And he anoints my head with oil when I come into his presence. My cup flows over when I'm in his tent because he's always acting. He's never reacting. When I'm with the shepherd, I'm never thirsty because he is the source of living water. When I'm with the shepherd, I'm never hungry because he prepares a table before me. When I'm with the shepherd, I'm never at the mercy of my enemies because he does it even in the presence of mine enemies. He takes care of me. David says it with confidence. I'm with my shepherd, so I shall not want. If we find our life to be in a place of discontentment where we're not satisfied with where we are, we're not satisfied with what we have, we find ourselves griping or complaining or, or, or sad or depressed or upset, there's all kinds of factors that come into it, but ultimately it may come down to the fact that we're not really following the shepherd. We're not sitting in his 
table. We're not drinking from his well. We may not be fully giving ourselves to him. And I'm not saying this morning if you're feeling depressed or lonely or anxious uh, that it's a direct result of you not coming to God. You may be coming to God and still feeling those things because feelings are that way. They're feelings. They come and they go. But ultimately, David says, over the scope of my life, if I look at the, the whole and not the moment, if I look at the forest and not just the tree, I can see that the Lord has always been proactively providing and meeting my needs. See, the Bible calls him the Alpha and the Omega. And if you're a studier of Greek, you'll know that Alpha is the A and Omega is the Z of the Greek alphabet. Jesus is the beginning and he is the ending. He is the author and he is the finisher of my faith. When, when God moves, he moves because he is in control, full control, to the point where he would even allow Satan to touch one of his servants by the name of Job. Satan said if, if, if Job really was going through a hard thing, God, then, then he would curse you and die. And God said, okay, go ahead and touch my servant Job. But you can only touch this and you can't touch that because God was proactively allowing Satan to test Job and bring him to the point where he would completely surrender everything to God. And the end of that story is God restored double what was taken from him because he allowed Satan to touch. But God restored. God lead the newly freed children of Israel to the edge of the Red Sea. Isn't that funny? They're newly freed from the, the hand of Pharaoh, and God brings them to the edge of the sea. And if you ever look at the geography pictures of where God placed Israel, he literally placed them between a rock and a hard place because there's a narrow passage of cliff on either side. There was no escape to the sides, and there was no escape to the rear because Pharaoh had closed in behind them. Their access point, by, by what geographers have, have figured and, and understood from Scripture and, 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 and all that kind of stuff, archaeology, they discerned the area where Moses led the children of Israel. And one of the areas is literally they had to go through sheer cliffs on either side, a direct highway right to the edge of the Red Sea. When Pharaoh came in behind them, they were boxed in on all sides. There was no way of escape. God brought them to that place. Why? Because God doesn't react to anything. He knows exactly what he's going to do. He knows exactly where his children are. And if you're following the shepherd, he may lead you through the valley. David said, yea, though I walk through. I have to go through it. I can't go to the side. I can't circumvent it. I can't use a stick of dynamite and blow my way through the mountain. I've got to go through the valley of the shadow of death. But if I'm following the shepherd through the valley, I'll come out on the other side. He'll part the Red Sea. He'll move the Jordan River waters. God led that new nation of Israel into a land of fierce giants and walled cities, not because they were trained warriors. In fact, they were just newly rescued slaves, very little in their warrior skills or training, but because they were able to follow the direct commands of God, and they did what God told them to do. Walls fell down, and enemies were chased by bees and horses 
hornets. Uh, miracles happen because they followed the directive of God's instruction. God manifested himself in flesh in the New Testament. He allowed himself to be crucified. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever, like, ever really just sat down and thought about the crucifixion? How could God, because we say that Jesus Christ is the, the Bible says that he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It was in the plan of God for his only begotten son, his only begotten flesh, to be crucified on a cross. Crucifixion is the worst possible way for someone to die. And so God is going to use crucifixion to save the world. The crucifixion is the worst crime against humanity possible. How could God stamp with approval something like crucifixion? But it's interesting the Bible says that God disarmed the principalities and powers, Colossians 2.15, that were ranged against us and made a bold public display example of them and triumphing over them and in the cross. Verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8 says, Which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. God is so smart and so brilliant, and so amazing, that he could allow, he knew how Satan would want to crucify Jesus. He knew how the, the religious rulers of the day would want to attack the Christ. And he allowed them. God did not approve or stamp or put the thought into their mind, hey, you should crucify Jesus. But he allowed Satan and sin to do their worst to Jesus on the cross. God used it even though he did not approve of it himself. He used the crucifixion, the extent to which Jesus suffered and died in order to purchase our salvation. God is so much ahead of the game that he was able to foresee that crucifixion would be around at this time in history. Interesting. Jesus was not crucified in the year 2000. Why not? Crucifixion is probably not going to happen on very many continents in this world and be widely accepted by the massive governments of today. So God knew that there was a certain period in human history in which crucifixion would be the norm of capital punishment. And so he allowed a woman to become pregnant by a virgin pregnancy and, and, and placed her in the right place at the right time. And for the moms in the room, you were all given a due date of when your baby was going to show up. But I haven't met very many moms that said my baby came on the due date. Very, very, not it happens, but most of the time it's before or it's after or it's, you know, just because you never know exactly when, but God knew exactly when Mary was going to give birth and arranged it so that she would be from Nazareth all the way over to Bethlehem at the moment when she was going to give birth. So the prophecy could be fulfilled that Jesus, would, the Messiah, would come out of Bethlehem. And that's exactly what he did. 
And he arranged it so that they would go and live in Egypt for a time because it was prophesied that Jesus would come out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I have called my son. And then he would grow up in Nazareth so that he would be a man of low esteem and low value in the eye of the community. The Bible says that there was nothing good. When you looked at him, he was not beautiful. He was not handsome. He didn't have long, straightly permed, blonde hair. Jesus was just the average individual, looked like probably the ruggedy, uh, rough and tough stonemason that he was. I know the Bible says he was a carpenter, but you understand carpenter in the actual Greek means stonemason. So Jesus was a man who chiseled stone for a living. So he was he was a, a rough and tough. His hands weren't smooth and soft. Uh, he w- didn't have the delicate fingers of a, of a priest, but he had the hard working hands uh, of a blue-collared individual that was working for a living. Jesus was the average dude on his day. He didn't look special. He didn't, he didn't really, you know, come across as special until he began to speak. There was something about his words that turned heads. There was something about the thing he had to say. There was something about what he did that drew the attention. And then then just to know that God put the iron ore in the hills of Italy and Rome and and the area just at the right places so that at the right time man would develop the ability to extract the ore from the mountains and fashion metal and swords and nails and and they would would fashion ways of of brutalizing somebody and God allowed Jesus to come right at the right time so that he would be crucified at the very moment that the Passover lamb was being slain in Jerusalem. You see what I'm getting to, right? God is a God that acts. He is a God who plans and He's able to even use the things that people intend for evil. And the best good came out of the worst kind of evil on Christ on the cross. I'm here to let you know this morning that there ain't nothing the devil has thrown at you or used against you that God cannot turn on a dime and use for your good. Even the years that you've wasted, the time that you've wasted in your walk with God or in before your walk with God, God can turn everything around and use it for good. That's what Psalms 23 is all about because he's a God that leads. He's proactive in his efforts to rescue me. Jesus did some of the most unusual things when he performed miracles. He walked on water to save his disciples from a sinking storm. He spit in the clay to heal the eye of a blind man. He spoke to sickness and it vanished. He stopped funeral processions. You imagine a pastor pulling his vehicle out in front of a hearse as it transitions down the highway from the funeral to the graveyard and stopping that and asking them to open the back of the hearse and pull out the casket and open the casket and calling that person to life. That's what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. That's the kind of Jesus stopped funeral processions and called people out of their their funeral pyre and said, get up and be alive, and they did. Jesus did amazing things because he's the God who acts. He does not react. Some of his disciples were confused because when Jesus' best friend Lazarus died, Jesus waited for three days. Why aren't we even going, Jesus, just to mourn his death? And Jesus said, you know, I got my own plans, guys. I'll get there when I get there. Because when I get there, I'm not late. I'm exactly when I need to be there. 
And you may think, God, you've waited three days and my dream has died and rotted and stinketh. And God says, I'm able to bring the dead back to life and bring it back to life in a way that will give me the glory and will exalt my kingdom in your life. God is not a God who reacts to your problem but he is a God who acts he is so much a God who acts proactive that David said he prepares a table before me in the presence of mine enemies now now in in eastern culture in the in the honor shame culture David draws his from his experience hospitality is paramount in this in this culture, extreme, very extreme, uh, way beyond anything we do here in Canada. We're, Canada's known as the nice country, you know. We, we're, we're famous for being nice to people. But, but uh, hospitality in the honor-shame culture takes niceness to another level uh, because really... The, the role of hospitality in the honor-shame culture, in the Eastern culture, the Oriental culture, uh, the, the onus, uh, the honor is actually on the host, not on the guest. See, in Canada, the honor is on the guest. We fix what the guest likes to eat. We do things to honor the guest. We make the guest feel welcome. We make the guest feel at home. And it's all about the guest. And really... In, in, in the Oriental culture, it's the same, except it's not so much about the guest, but it's how good of a host you are. And so you treat the guest with, with extreme honor and with extreme kindness and with extreme uh, 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 generosity, not to honor them, but to demonstrate how good of a host you are. To the point where... When someone enters your home, they're immediately under your protection. Even to the exclusion of your own family. Your family becomes less important than the guest that walks through your door. I experienced this personally when I walked through the, the door of a Muslim family and we had given them a gift. We had, they, they were friends of ours and we'd given them a gift and they, they said, no, you must come inside. You must that, that was, they didn't say, would you like to come in? They said, you must come in. You must come in and sit down and just visit for a few minutes. I said, okay. And I had warned my wife. I said, honey, you know when we get there, I know something about this culture, and you're not getting out. I, I guarantee you they've made a hot meal. Steph's like, it's the middle of the day, Joel. They did not make us a hot meal. There's no way. There's no way. Like, I just was drop the gift and go. I said, no, baby. You need to understand you should have come hungry. Because they made, a, they made a meal. I know you just, we're just dropping off a gift. They know we're coming, and they made a meal. And they, no, you must come in. I said, okay, we'll come in. And we sit down, and, and the, the kids were, like, bouncing up and down in the kitchen. They're just kind of anxiously standing there waiting. And, and mom says, would you like a drink? I said, yes, thank you. We would love a drink because I know 
you don't say no, you say yes. That, that's just what you do. And, uh, and so mom goes over and she, she pours a drink and she begins to tell us how this is a special drink from Pakistan. And they, they uh, drink it on special occasions and it's like a, basically a, a fruit drink, some kind of a fruit drink. And they, they only take it out at special times and she pours it. And the kids are bouncing up and down waiting. I could tell they wanted the drink too. And I knew what was going on. The kids weren't allowed to even have their cup poured until I had taken the first drink. And I waited, and as soon as I took the first drink, the little one says, Mommy, can I have my drink now? Can I have my drink now? Because he knew the rules. He knew the etiquette. The guest gets it first. More important than the, the, than the children in the home. More important than the, the family because the guest is the honored person. And lo and behold, they had made us a lasagna. Middle of the day, an awkward time to eat lasagna, but we, we, I accepted it and said thank you because I knew this is what you do when... When you're given a gift, you prepare something. And I was reminded of this while I'm studying. He prepares. I enter into his presence, and he says, you must come in and sit down. You have to understand that this is what God has said to you. When you came to church this morning, you might have thought, well, I just finally got myself out of bed and got to church. No, God came, knocked on your door, and says, you must come into my house this morning. I have a meal prepared. I want you to sit down. I'm going to put a drink in your hand, and I'm going to put a meal before you. I've prepared this for you. You didn't do the right thing by coming to church. You just came in into my tent, and I told you to sit down, and I've prepared a meal. And by the way, it's extremely rude to say no to your host in the Oriental culture. You always say yes. Even if you don't want it, you say yes because it shows them honor. So when God sits you down in church this morning or wherever you may be joining us by Zoom because you're still in the house of God and he says it's time to worship, that's not really, you're not really giving him anything. You're, you're, you're allowing yourself to take the cup of, of drink from him and to drink freely of the rivers of life because when you worship him, there is a river of life that begins to flow. There is a moving of his presence that begins to flow and you are blessed when you worship him. It's like a, a receiving the drink and then he says, I, I want you to be seated because I prepared a hot meal for you and the word of God is read to your ears. And if you're wise, you'll open up your heart and say, yes, Lord, I receive the word that you have. See, what you didn't realize is you came into the house of God thinking that you were just coming to church, but you came into his tent, and now you are his guest, and he's sitting you down, and he's feeding your soul, and he's feeding your spirit, and he's restoring the wounds. And the Bible says he anoints my head with oil. There's a significant medical practice in the days that when there was a wound it was anointed with wine and with oil. When Jesus met, talked about the, the Samaritan that was uh, met on the road to, to Jericho and the good Samaritan came and, and found the man who was bruised by robbers he poured oil and wine into his wounds because there was a medicinal quality to the oil. There was a medicinal quality to the wine that stopped the infection and began the 
healing process. Uh, and you may leave this place with fresh wounds uh, from your week. You may leave this place with wounds on your soul and wounds on your spirit uh, from, from harsh things that people have said uh, or difficult circumstances that you've gone through this week. Uh, but when you walked into the tent uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he poured oil on the wounds uh, and he poured wine, his spirit, uh, over those wounds to stop the infection and begin the healing process. Uh, and then David says, you, you prepared a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Uh, what you don't understand about oriental culture is that even if the enemy of the host uh, comes and before he's met by the servants of the, of the master, he gets off his horse and he touches the tent uh, of his host, uh, he's instantaneously protected by the hospitality of the host, even if he's the enemy. And the host is obligated to bring his enemy into the tent and treat him like he is a treasured guest. While he's under the tent of the, of the host, nobody can touch him. He may have been the enemy of that particular person, but if he enters into the tent under the auspices of a host and guest, he's protected. And David says, the Lord has prepared a table before me even in the presence of mine enemies. In other words, David entered the tent at the same time that his enemies entered the tent, but that didn't exclude their relationship. God was able to provide for the enemy, and he was able to provide for David. It needs to give you a new perspective perspective on your enemies, that God wants to prepare a table before you, and he wants to prepare a table before your enemy at the same time. In other words, God is able to restore broken relationships. Uh, I want you to know that you may have a broken relationship with your father, with your mother, with your sister, with your, with your friend uh, down the street, but if you'll come in under the tent of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he'll be able to restore those broken relationships. It'll It'll take time. It'll take prayer. It'll take you dying out to your hatred and you dying out to your anger and you receiving forgiveness and being able to forgive. By the way, forgiveness does not put an okay symbol on what they did. But it says what they did was done and we're going to put it here, we're going to bury it, and we're going to move on. I'm not carrying what you did to me for the rest of my life. I'm going to put it down and allow God to forgive you and pray that the Lord will help you see what you did was wrong. I'm going to pray for you that God will bless you. And the best blessing God can give you is a heart of repentance to turn away from your wrong and repent for what you did and find grace and forgiveness uh, because that's what I'm that's what forgiveness is folks uh, David says you prepared a table before me in the presence of mine enemies the Bible talks about multiple kinds of enemies. There's the personal enemy, the, the one that I've been kind of talking about, right? The, the enemy that has a face. That as soon as I said the word enemy, that face, that name popped in your brain. I could see it, the furrow of the brows went across the room. It just went from left to right, you know, the furrow of the brow. Because everybody's got a personal enemy. Hello, I'm just talking real here. Everybody's got a face and a name. When you say the word enemy, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Uh, let's not talk about them for now. Put that aside. Just put that back. I don't want to bury it in my purse, put it under my coat jacket. Let's keep that past. We don't want to get too real here. I mean, it's Sunday morning, right? We don't want to, don't want to expose too much. But, but David says, you know, there, there is the personal enemy. But more important than that, because Jesus addressed that in Matthew 5, he says, love your enemies. 
bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, because by the way, the personal enemy is also welcome into the tent of Jesus. And also eligible, even if they have been an enemy of God, to sit at his table and he will give them drink and he will feed them. That's how good, that's how good your God is. He will feed your enemies and give them drink. You know why that's good? Because at one point in time, you were God's enemy. At one point in time, I was the enemy of God because I rebelled against his word. And I want, if I want him to treat me that way, i got to be okay when he treats my personal enemy that way. And I should even celebrate because it's not celebrating them, it's celebrating how good he is. Uh, he's able, he knows them to the core. He knows them to the thought. The thoughts that you aren't even aware of that he knows about them. He knows and he's still able to put a drink in front of them. He's still able to pour oil over their head. And he's still able to put a meal in front of them and say, you're in my house. I'm going to take care of you. We serve a good God this morning. He doesn't turn enemies out of his tent, but he welcomes them to his table. But even more than that, there's a spiritual enemy. Paul says we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against spiritual enemies, rulers, authorities of the unseen world, powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Make no mistake that there is a spiritual force behind every personal enemy in your life. There is a dark and sinister plan and trap of the enemy behind every personal enemy that you can see out there. So Paul said, don't bother wrestling with the flesh and blood. Love the flesh and blood and pray against that spiritual enemy because that's the real enemy enemy. And I want you to know that even the real enemy is in the tent of the Lord. Someone said once, the devil can't come into the church. <clears throat> I don't know what Bible you're reading. Because Bible says here that he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. On one hand, I'm thankful that he welcomes my personal enemies to the table. Because that means he'll welcome me. But at the same time, I get the sense that God behind the spiritual curtain is thumbing his nose at the devil and say, you can do what you like to them. I still love them. I still died for them. And I'm going to prepare a table before them in your presence just to let you know how foolish you really are to think that you could take someone out of my hands when I have called them and when I put my hand on them, I'm still going to bless them. And you can try to get them to curse me and die, but I'm still going to reach for them. I'm still going to love them. And how, what does the devil do? The Bible says the devil tries to wear out the saints of God. He tries to tire you and weary you and oppress and depress you. That's his mission in life, to steal, to kill, and to destroy and to tempt to do evil. So the Bible says he prepares a table before me. In the, when the devil's there whispered in your ears, God is preparing a table before you. The Bible says that there is no temptation taken man, but is not common to man. And with every temptation, God makes a way of escape. In other words, 
Every time you're tempted to do evil, every time the devil whispers in your ear some kind of discouragement, some kind of depressive thought, some kind of oppressive thing, you need to realize and open your eyes in the spirit to faith that David said, he prepares a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. When Satan is whispering in my ear, I need to know that's just the the dinner bell that Jesus is calling me to the table. When I'm feeling tempted to do the wrong thing and that that lust or that drive is overwhelming me and I feel like I'm just going to give in that last time, even though I promised myself I'd never do that thing again when that temptation gets to the overwhelming period. I know it's the dinner bell because the Bible says that he prepares a table before me and prepares a way of escape out of the temptation. He prepares a feast of love when I'm feeling low. He prepares a a feast of peace uh, when I'm feeling anxious. Uh, He prepares a piece of joy when I'm feeling depressed. Uh, He prepares a table before me in the presence uh, of mine enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup runneth over. I cannot contain it. See, God intends for the blessing to be so great in your life uh, that it runs over and spills onto the table and runs off the table and out underneath the the, the bounds of the tent and down the street because the Bible says goodness and mercy shall follow me all of the days of my life. I used to think that meant that God was just making sure everything was good on the tail. You know, know, sometimes you walk, you you look in the mirror and everything's good in the front and you ask your friend, because you can only ask your friend this, can you look, is everything good in the back? You know, I used to think that's what it meant. God was just making sure everything was good in the back. My shirt wasn't tucked into my pants, that something funny wasn't going on, I didn't have toilet paper stuck to the bottom of my shoe, he was, you know, goodness and mercy, follow me, just let me know everything's good on the backside. That's not what it's saying. It says that that goodness and mercy has so overfilled in my life that it follows me, that I now become the tent of the Lord, and wherever I go, the goodness of God is following me. I'm leaving a trail of goodness and mercy. When I leave someone's house, goodness and mercy are behind me, lingering in that place. When I leave the store, and I talk to the cashier at the register, and if I'm following the shepherd and sitting at the shepherd's table, I'm so overfull of the goodness of the Lord that it flows out of my cup and spills into her and goodness and mercy are left behind at that cash register she can't see it nobody else can see it in the store but I've left goodness and mercy behind me all the days of my life and by the way I'm the guest that never leaves because David says I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever I decided that I'm not living in my old life anymore. I'm coming to live in his life. I'm coming to live in his tent and always to be welcomed at the table. You came to this service to be reminded this morning God has prepared a table before you. You don't have to eat the scraps out in the world. You don't have to dumpster dive in the spirit. You can come into the house of the Lord on a Sunday morning, on a Monday evening, on a Tuesday afternoon. You can enter into the tent of the Lord and find that there is a hot drink and a warm meal prepared for you. God has joy. God has peace. God has provision for you wherever you are. Can we stand this morning? Would you lift your hands and just begin to receive the blessings of the Lord this morning? He's promised